We are continuing along in our study of the gospel. Hopefully you all have outlines, and I'll just give a quick recap for those that weren't with us last time. Gospel, as you know, means good news. Evangelism is the announcing of good news. And I'm hoping once we complete this study at some later date, to actually come back and look more closely at evangelism. But we can't really share something if we don't know it. (laughs) So we want to first find out what the news is, and then later on talk about how to share that good news. But we're taking the title of this study from Luke chapter 2, which unfortunately a lot of times we only refer to at Christmas time, the announcement of Christ's birth. You find twice in this passage the Greek word mega, which means great. It says there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. In the Greek, they were mega afraid. They were greatly afraid. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I give you good news of great, and here comes the same word again, mega, but this time it's not mega fear, it's mega joy. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Tabir has been born to you. He is Christ's Lord. The good news, we're told here, will be for all people. This is not just a Jewish gospel. It's not just good news for the people around Bethlehem or Jerusalem. This is for the whole world. And the good news is actually Jesus. It is the fact that the Savior has now been born, the Savior has come. I'm not going to go over everything that we looked at last time, but please study these next verses because it's important to tie the Old Testament with the New. And the gospel was announced by the prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies concerning his birth, his life, his death, and everything in between. But this particular passage in Matthew 4, which quotes from Isaiah chapter 8, is a real key in tying the old with the new and understanding that Christ's coming was a major event, major, major event. And the good news we can understand a little bit more from this passage where it says, Now those who have been sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death, there will be no more for them, no more distress. And then it finally ends up with that well-known verse, which again we often refer to only at Christmas time, Isaiah 9, 6. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The good news is Jesus. It's not just what he was going to do or what miracles he was going to work. It is the Son of God. It is the fact now the Savior has come. And we talked from Hebrews 1 how in times past God spoke through prophets. He spoke in a variety of ways through angels as we just read in Luke chapter 2. But now in these last days, and we are in the last days, God has a special message. It is His Son. 
It doesn't just say there will be messages about his son. Jesus Christ is God's message. And so we need to keep continually coming back to the fact that this salvation, this good news is a person. It's not just a series of rules or laws or uh, some new system that will get us into heaven. It's a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, not by a system or a new religion, but by me. And so the emphasis is on having a personal relationship with this good news, coming to know him who is the good news. All right, we talked a lot about how there's only one true gospel. Paul spoke some of the strongest language in the New Testament, that if anyone preaches any other gospel, any other Jesus, let him be damned, is actually the word that's used in the original language. Let him be accursed. Let him be condemned. Anyone who tries to alter or fidget with this good news. And you know, as we go through this, um, I think there's about 49, 50 pages to this whole study. But I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that the gospel is simple. We're going to look at the depths of some of the aspects of the gospel, but it's so simple a child can understand it and a child can believe it. Matter of fact, we must become like children to be able to see the gospel. Now, we're looking at five key aspects of the gospel or the good news. The first one is atonement, and I'm going to define that word tonight. It's an all-encompassing term that includes things like forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation, justification. Those are all big, fancy words, but it's basically what we would normally refer to as salvation. But we're going to see that salvation covers a whole lot more than that. Hebrews 2 tells us this is a great salvation. It's a great salvation. It encompasses much more than just having our sins forgiven and escaping the wrath of God. But that's the first one we want to look at. Secondly, we want to look at the good news of deliverance. One of the aspects of Jesus' gospel ministry, as he went around preaching the good news, he also demonstrated good news in two ways, particularly by casting out demons, setting captives free, and then healing the sick. Those are parts two and part three of this study. We're going to look at the good news of deliverance, then the good news of healing. Fourthly, we're going to look at the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus went around preaching the gospel of the kingdom. What is that? What what do we mean by the good news of the kingdom? And then finally, we're going to look at the the eternal aspects of the gospel. Revelation 14 calls it the eternal gospel. This is not just for, you know, 50 or 60 years while we're here on this earth. That's just the preparation for eternal life, eternal joy, eternal blessings. And the gospel promises us a good life forever, not just for a few years. And we're going to look in detail in the last section at the hope that is held out to us through the gospel. All right, let's dig right into part one. We introduced a little bit of this last week, and I'm going to pick it up in Romans 1. We saw that in Romans 1, Paul sets the stage for a detailed explanation to the Roman church of the gospel. And he starts right off in verse 1, and he says, I was set apart for the gospel. In verse 9, he says that he was serving God with his whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son. Then in chapter 
1, verse 14, he says he was eager. He couldn't wait to get to Rome to preach the gospel to them. And then finally, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Romans 1, we're going to start at verse 16 and look at quite a few verses here. Romans 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, righteous will live by faith. Notice in verse 16, Paul says something profound about the gospel. It doesn't just contain a message about power. It doesn't promise power. He actually says the gospel is the power of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I want more of God's power in my life. The Holy Spirit spoke to me through this verse. The power of God is the good news. The better we know the good news, the more God's power is going to be able to freely operate in our lives. And very often, because of ignorance or a shallowness of understanding about the good news, we limit the power of God from really working in our lives. So this is a profound statement about the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. So he's going to teach us in the next couple of chapters in a convincing way that everyone needs salvation. There, there isn't any exception. Everyone needs salvation. And this is the only answer for mankind's problem. There isn't a second answer. There isn't a plan B. The gospel is the only solution. And that's why Paul kept talking over and over about the gospel, gospel, gospel. Can't wait to come and preach the gospel. And finally, he's saying, I'm not ashamed of that gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And you know, Further on in chapter 15, you don't need to turn there, but he tells them again, I can't wait to come to Rome because when I come, I know that I will come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Wow. He knew that as a messenger of the gospel, not because he was good looking or a clever preacher, but he knew because of the message that he had, wherever he went, he could take blessing. That's that's powerful. That's powerful. And you may think, well, yeah, but I'm not a preacher. Oh, not so fast. We're all preachers. Every one of us is commanded by God to preach, proclaim, announce this good news to every creature. And so the more you understand the power of the message, the less emphasis you put on the messenger. You may stutter and stumble over your words. It doesn't matter. The power is not in your mouth. The power is in the message not the messenger. And he introduces us to something else that's going to be a theme throughout the whole book of Romans. It's faith, a righteousness that comes by faith. This is a revolutionary thing that Paul is about to introduce here. They thought righteousness came by works. He's going to teach now there's a whole nother kind of righteousness that comes by trusting in God, more specifically in trusting in the good news of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Now, I touched on this last time, 
In verse 17, and again in verse 18, there's a key word. It's the word revealed. Notice, in verse 17, he says, In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Now, I think you've been with us long enough to know what revealed signifies, or what is a revelation. It's something that was hidden, that God himself uncovers or unveils so that we can now see it and understand it. It's not that it wasn't always there, it's that we couldn't see it before. So one thing we're going to get a revelation of through the gospel is this righteousness that comes by faith. Very important concept in the book of Romans. The second revelation is mentioned in verse 18. What is this revelation? It's a revelation of the wrath of God. Hmm. Most people like to skip over that one. That doesn't sound very pretty. As I pointed out last time, as I pointed out last time, this revelation must come before we can understand the first revelation. I'm going to let that sink in. We must understand this second revelation before we can really appreciate the first revelation. And the good news won't really be good news unless we really understand the bad news and how bad it is. Paul has been saying, I can't wait to come to Rome. I'm so eager to preach the gospel. Now we're going to start. And from verse 18 in chapter 1, all the way up to Romans 3, verse 20, he tells them nothing but bad news. If you want to check me, you can, but I actually counted them. There's 63 verses where there's no good news at all. Now, was Paul being absent-minded? Was he, was he like some of us preachers? You know, we say, I'm going to speak about this and we go way off in some other direction. No, I don't think he lost his train of thought. Matter of fact, he's very deliberate in the way he's presenting the gospel. And maybe we could learn something from Paul's preaching of the gospel. I'm afraid, and, and I say this as humbly as I can. I'm not trying to sound like I've got it all figured out or I'm smarter than everybody, but I'm afraid that a lot of times our gospel preaching very, very shallow. And that's why we end up with shallow believers who don't really have a depth in their spiritual life because they've never first confronted just how bad the news is about me. For instance, if you go to the doctor and you're not feeling very well and the doctor says, oh, you have a cold, you'll be all right in two days. You're not going to put too much stock in all of that. But if he says, you have stage four cancer, you have about two weeks to live. And then he says, but I have a pill here that'll cure you overnight. That's really good news. I want that pill. <laughs> Give me a whole box of them. You see, so the, the more we understand just how sick we are, then when Paul comes around to telling us about the cure in chapter three, we are going to do somersaults and say, hallelujah, this is good news. I can't wait to go tell other people this good news. But first, we must make it through the bad news. And it's bad. It's really, really bad. And I I put a note in here that I read for you last time. I'm going to read it again. It's a quote from Martin Luther. He says, a person must confront his own sinfulness in all its ravaging depths before he can enjoy the comforts of salvation. So the revelation that we first need 
is what he starts telling us about in verse 18, the wrath of God, the anger of God. And what we're going to learn here is those whom God saves, they are actually his enemies. You may say, well, I was never really an enemy of God. Oh, yes, you were. And until you come to realize that that's how God viewed you, you're not going to really understand the goodness. Because the Bible makes it very clear. We were completely alienated from God. We were enemies of God in our minds. Our minds were completely opposed to God because of sin. I'm getting ahead of the story. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against, well, a couple of real bad sins, right? Like murder. What's it say? Against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And I think you've heard me share here before, I don't believe there is such a thing as an atheist. And I can prove it from these verses in Romans 1 and from other scriptures. But Paul makes it very clear, there's no such thing as an atheist. What you have are God's suppressors. Notice he uses that word suppress a couple times here. They suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse." This is all men, all women, all children. Every human being has no excuse. God has clearly manifested himself just through creation, but it's more. Although they knew God, what does it say? They never knew God? No. Although they did know God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles, various forms of idolatry. Because of that, verse 24, God gave them over. We're going to find that expression three times. God gave them over. And some theologians refer to this as the wrath of abandonment. Sometimes we think of wrath as, you know, Hurricane Sandy flooding all the subways and knocking down all the trees. Not necessarily. God's wrath comes in a number of different forms. And for me, the more I've studied it, this one seems to be more universal and it's more frightening. Because notice what happens. Because they didn't want to know God, because they kept suppressing the truth that was inside their heart, Remember, God has set eternity in our hearts, Ecclesiastes 3 says. Because they didn't want to know God, they didn't want to glorify God, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Now, you have to stop and think about every word here carefully. If God gave them over to that, and that's part of his wrath and his judgment, prior to that, there must have been some sort of restraining grace and theologians refer to that restraining grace that somehow God was keeping mankind from falling headlong into these vices and sins. But he ultimately 
gives them over. It's almost like letting them go. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God. What did they have? They had the truth. What did they do with it? They traded it in for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Verse 26, here comes stage two. Because of this, God gave them over. This is a second level. God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. You know, the preponderance of perversion and homosexuality in our culture now, and I mean, it's worldwide. This thing is coming in like a flood now. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. And it's certainly not genetic. This is God's doing. This is God giving them over. The the sexual revolution that took place in America in the 60s and spread throughout the world, I see that as stage one. You know, prior to that, People got arrested even for having an affair with someone outside of marriage. (laughs) Now we laugh. Everybody has affairs. Everybody, you know, is carrying on. But there was a time when society was much more moral than it is now. But now we've been given over to that sexual impurity. And then comes stage two, this giving over to perversion. And, you know... I don't care what kind of sugar-coated words society wants to use. Gay. Most of the homosexuals that I've known and tried to help are anything but gay. They're very troubled. They have a lot of problems in their lives. And I feel sorry for them. I really do. And I'm not trying to come across as being harsh, but notice some of the language here. Go back to verse 26. Shameful, unnatural, indecent. And then finally it ends with the word perversion. That's how God views this so-called lifestyle that we are now encouraged to embrace and tolerate. But it goes further. It gets worse. Verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, what did they have? They had knowledge of God, but they didn't want to retain it. Then he gave them over a third time to a depraved mind. Some Bibles translate it a reprobate mind. If you look at the actual Greek, it means a no-mind. <laughs> Just a no-mind. Could this not explain a lot of the insanity we see in our world around us today? People have been given over to a no-mind. It talked earlier here about because they didn't want to glorify God or give Him thanks and praise, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise... Oh, we've got master's degree, PhDs, we're doctors, we're experts on everything. They became fools. Psalm 14, which is one passage that Paul's going to quote when he gets a little further along in his discussion here, it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no one. That's a fool. Why? Because he knows in his heart there is one. Verse 29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters. Remember, Paul came to Rome to preach good news. <laughs> But he goes on and on here. And finally, in verse 32, chapter 1 comes to an end. 
with these words. Although they know, they're not ignorant, they know. What do they know? They know God's righteous decree. It's written on their heart. He'll tell us in chapter 2, it's actually written in their conscience. They know the things that they're doing are wrong. But although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve what? Deserve death. Not only do they continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Then in chapter 2, Paul turns to religious folks. Maybe we thought we were exempt because we go to church or we towed a big Bible around. Now Paul's going to zero in on the self-righteous, the religious Pharisees who thought because they do X, Y, or Z, it makes them a little better than all these creeps in chapter (laughs) 1. Well, let's see what he has to say to the religious folks. You, therefore, uh uh-oh, you have no excuse. Oh, Lord, we're in the same boat. You have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same thing. You know, religion, and I'm making a distinction between religion and the gospel. Religion is a breeding ground for hypocrisy and for coming under a critical, condemning spirit where we pass judgment on everyone else around us, much like Pharisees did. Verse 2, now we know, we religious folk, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Now the religious people are starting to squirm. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up, uh uh-oh, here comes that word again, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And basically, I'm not going to read all of chapter 2, but by the time you're done with chapter 2, he's dealt with any self-righteous person who thinks they're better than anyone. He does say something very profound in the middle here, and that's what I want to look at. Look at verse 12 for just a moment. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, now he's talking about heathen who have never heard the word of God. When Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature, note that word, nature, it's in their nature, when they do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though They do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Wow, we need to speak more about it. I think if you can really get some of these thoughts into your spirit, it's going to help you immensely further down the road when we talk about evangelism. When you're sharing with unsaved people, there are a couple of things you can know about them. A, they already know God. God has already revealed himself to them. 
through the creation. B, they already have laws written on their heart. There's a moral code that has already been stamped into their natural being. And that's why by nature, even a Gentile who's never heard anything from the Bible can do those things that the law required. Let me read verse 15 again. Since they show that the requirements of the law, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not lie, are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. That's really something. So by the time we come to the end of chapter 2, he's basically written off the whole human race, both Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. They've all completely failed. But he hasn't quite put the nail in the coffin yet. (laughs) He saves his real thunder for chapter 3. And man, it gets really bad in chapter 3. Remember, he's wanting to preach good news. But this surely isn't good news yet. Chapter 3 begins with, What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way, first of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. And he, he tells them a little bit about why it's not all bad if there were some Jews that were listening to him, but just being a Jew isn't going to get him saved. And then in verse 9, he says, What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under, we haven't really mentioned this word yet, they're under sin. This is the whole problem that he's about to talk about. Our problem is sin. Man's problem is sin. It's not the family we grew up in or the neighborhood where we were born or what color our skin is. Or It's none of that. It's sin. And he's now going to really zero in from verse 10 onwards. As it is written, and all these quotations come from the Old Testament. If you have a Bible with the little references, it probably tells you where he's quoting all this. But all this is written in the Old Testament. There is no one righteous, not even one. Now that pretty much sums the whole thing up, but he's going to go into much more depth. But that's the point he's trying to get across. There isn't one human being that can stand right before God on their own merit. Now remember, he's preparing the way to preach the good news. And the best news of all is going to come in verse 21, where he talks about this other kind of righteousness that comes by faith and not by our own works. But he must first convince us that there's no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Let that sink in. Our situation is really messed up. Not only are we not righteous, we don't even understand how messed up we are, and we don't seek God. (laughs) Perhaps that's why Paul writes in another place, when we were without God, we were without hope. Without hope. This is a hopeless situation. And that's exactly what he's trying to paint. This picture, very, very dark picture, of just how lost people are because of sin. Verse 12, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats 
are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. So, here's what sin has done to the human race. No one, not one, is righteous before God. No one, not one, does good. We may think we're doing good deeds before we come to Christ. In God's eyes, it's not good. No one does good. No one even is looking to God for help or for salvation. And there's no fear of God. So there's really nothing to even motivate me to turn to God for help. I'm just going to keep going deeper and deeper because, remember, God has given me over to sin. He's given me over to wickedness and depravity. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced. I like every mouth may be silenced. And some Jews and some Gentiles? No, the whole world. He's now about to wrap up his prosecution. (laughs) He's going to leave the whole world guilty. Every mouth silenced, the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, by trying to keep the Ten Commandments, by trying to go to church, read the Bible, or do good things. No one can establish his or her own system of righteousness. And I've pointed out before, this is what sets the gospel apart from all the religions of the world. I don't care what religion you want to fill in the blank, they all have one common denominator. It's somehow about what I have to do to make myself good enough to be accepted by God. Whether I have to go blow up people as a terrorist, or lay on a bed of nails, or keep a whole system of rules and laws, somehow... Every religion is based in self-effort, self-righteousness. The gospel, right off the bat, it declares we are absolutely incapable of doing anything to fix our condition. That's amazing. Verse 20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That's pretty bad news. No fear of God, no righteousness. We're under the power of sin. We've been given over repeatedly to deeper and darker wickedness and godlessness. Because we didn't want the truth, God gave us over to a lie. Verse 21 starts with one of my favorite words in the Bible. But, but. Oh, thank God for that but. Because if it ended there, we're finished. We are finished. But now, a righteousness from God. This isn't from us. A righteousness from God apart from law. This has nothing to do with religion. This has nothing to do with your good works or mine. Apart from all of that, has now been made known. Remember, he said two things are being revealed in the gospel. A righteousness from God and the wrath of God against all wickedness. He's finished with the wrath of God. He's now coming back to the first revelation. A revelation of a new kind of righteousness. This comes from God, and we're about to learn it's a gift. It's a free 
gift. Not earned, not something we deserve. It's freely given by God. Verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith. There's that word now. We're going to hear that word a lot. This righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Not in Buddha, not in one of the 30,000 Hindu gods, not in Allah, not in an angel. This only comes one way, through faith in a person. And that brings me back to my point. The good news is a person. Today, a Savior has been born. Jesus is the good news, and this righteousness comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. But notice, again, the word all. To all who believe. So all had sinned. All were under this curse and darkness and all the other things he talks about. But all can now be saved simply by believing in Jesus Christ. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of glory. You know, the word for sin, I think we looked at this in previous studies, it actually means to miss the mark. Kind of like if you were doing target practice or aiming an arrow at a target, you keep missing the mark, keep missing target. Sin means we've missed God's mark. We always fall short of his standard. We always fall short of the glory of God. We will never in a million years be able to attain it in our own efforts. That's why all the religions of the world are complete failures. They are failures. And I feel sorry for people that are trapped in these religions because they may think that because they're doing a certain, you know, regimen of good works or fastings or prayers or whatever, that it's going to guarantee some access to God or heaven. It's a deception. It's a lie. In the end, they're going to find out that all their sweat and labor got them nothing at all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. You have to read this slowly and let each word sink in, because each word is important. And we're going to summarize this when we get to the end of of this portion of our study. But you have words like justification mentioned here, redemption mentioned in the same verse, grace mentioned all in one verse, justified freely by his grace 